Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening. And blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. I'll give a small introduction. Um, my name is Tyreen Wright, and um, I guess you have me on the show because I'm the author of a book called Booker T. Washington in Africa, The Making of a Pan-Africanist. And basically it's just... Uh, uh, I guess you could say a historical and biographical sketch of Washington's role in Africa, which is very clandestine. And uh, the book itself has two cases in addition to the history. And uh, those cases came out of some research I actually did uh, in grad school for my dissertation. Uh, but it also is a culmination of all my work on Washington over the years because I've, you know, produced other um, material or work on Washington uh, that was inclusive of the two cases and his other activity in Africa, being the Congo, Togo, and so on. So that's a little bit of my bio in terms of the work. I am a Tuskegee alumni, (laughs) but that did not have to do with uh, my decision to write this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, But however, however, it gave me some insight into the subject matter that I otherwise would not have had uh, Mm -hmm. because I did have mentorship uh, at certain points in grad school when I wrote on the subject matter. So, um, you know, that helped that I could put a lot of this historical information into context as someone who actually lived and attended Tus- lived in Tuskegee and attended Tuskegee University for four years. Why, why did you attend Tuskegee, doctor? I mean, I was an undergrad, and that was my school of choice. And... Um, you know, I well, I already knew I was going to go to a historically black college. That, for me, mm-hmm. I think, in my family was a given. Mm-hmm. Which uh, historically black college, uh, that was the question. But, you know, my family is from Florida, and 
a lot of us go to Florida A&M or Bethune-Cookman, and mm-hmm. I always knew I was a historian. So when it was time for me to go to college, I looked at all the schools I was interested in, and I read the history of Tuskegee, and I understood that it was, in fact, a historic site, right, one of the few university universities in the nation that is also a historic site. Mm. And um, I saw some of the things that were available to me as I dug into, you know, what the school had in terms of archives and things of that nature. And so instead of going to to a school in Florida, I went to Tuskegee. And, you know, now, you mentioned that, that was you, history knew, major. You, you, you mentioned you knew you were a historian. When did you? When you know how old were you, and when did your family members or your teachers recognize the historian in you? Uh, well, definitely, I guess I would say like in junior high school. Mm-hmm. So I, I always loved history, and we had a we had a eighth, seventh, and eighth grade history teacher, social studies teacher that was very engaging. But I always, I in my family, we talked about uh, history not just mm-hmm. African history, but we talked about uh, even European history, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Holocaust, for example. And we mm-hmm. had debates. I mean, we, you know, my parents both are avid readers, and so we talked mm-hmm. about things that were happening in the world. So, so when so did your peers I, recognize you, your peers recognize you as a historian? I don't know. I don't know if they ever did, but I always no, no one is surprised that, <laughs> okay. I, that okay. I do what I do or that I wrote that book. So I guess they must have known for a while. I don't. I really can't tell you that. Oh, that okay. I don't have that answer uh, when other people recognize it. But I always, I was always uh, interested in history and why certain things mm-hmm. happen. And I was particular. You know, in my household, we talked about social dynamics. You know, mm-hmm. the difference between how my mother was uh, raised in the South, segregated South, and how I was being raised as a young black, I would say, African person in New York City, you know, in the mm-hmm. early, late 70s, early 80s. I mean, well, I was born in the 70s. So, you know, so... So we knew that there was a difference in how we were growing up and that there was a historical difference and there were some historic there were some historical events that took place that had transformed or at least appeared to have transformed uh some of the social dynamics and civil dynamics in American society. So I was aware of that, you know. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Now the title of your book Booker T. Mm-hmm. Washington in Africa, the making of a Pan-Africanist. Mm-hmm. Isn't that title more fitting for Du Bois? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. And thank you for asking that question. Because few people, they go right to the issue of, or the question of whether or not Washington is a Pan-Africanist, Pan-Africanist and, and never really ponder the title in terms of the fact that I'm saying the making of a Pan-Africanist, meaning the process, the transformation um, from wherever he was 
to a Pan-Africanist in, a me- in measurable ways. I mean, the the book title could have uh, fit Du Bois, because I do think that there's a point where Du Bois uh, develops as a Pan-Africanist himself. <laughs> However, mm-hmm. I am not an expert on Du Bois. I'm, I would say I'm an expert on Washington's role in Africa. Mm-hmm and his relationship to African people internationally. So, uh, but, yeah, it could have been applied to Du Bois, but the fact that Du Bois, part of his legacy is that he is respected as a Pan-Africanist who who initiated the first Pan-African, the Pan-African Congresses, right, which uh, there were several. Uh, but Washington... That is not his legacy, mm-hmm. right? Most people don't even think that Washington <laughs> knew anything about Pan-Africanism. And so that's why I guess the, the title in and of itself is maybe a little um, thought-provoking, if not mm-hmm. provocative. <laughs> because is it accurate? Is it accurate? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's accurate. I mean, I think... <laughs> The, the, this this particular subject matter and the research was very challenging. However, I mean, I couldn't have had a better scenario. There is so much on Washington and his relationship with African people and what he said to and about African people that it couldn't have been – I couldn't have – wish for anything better. There's an mm. abundance of information. This book really, to be quite frank, is only like the beginning of a fuller conversation on that. It's a, a blip. It could all of it could be taken much further. Maybe I'll do that, I don't know. But <laughs> the point is is that there's a wealth of information um in Washington's personal papers about his dealings in African affairs and with African people and and what that means is something that is left up to the interpreter Um, and I'm saying it means he's a Pan-Africanist. There are other people who have examined some of the same information and have decided to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. So that's compelling because like I said, all the documents you know, and I could talk a little bit about why I'm referring to documents in terms of the book because there's a I wrote the book in a particular fashion. You know, but um, let's talk about the Liberian the crisis. Okay. Let's talk about the Liberian crisis. Um, okay. Tell tell me uh, a little bit about Booker T. Washington and his role with the Liberian crisis, and if you could mm. explain, because I'm not familiar with the Liberian crisis, so I'm okay. so here to learn. I have my pad and pen. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. I uh, well, the Liberian crisis is uh, something that occurred in 1907, and it spanned through to 1912. And first and foremost, let me say this: what the only thing that is unique about this situation that Liberia. Uh, this independent African nation found itself in was the fact that the only thing unique about this particular crisis is that Washington is involved. The crisis in and of itself 
factors surrounding it uh, were such that were ongoing, meaning clashes between the indigenous population and the and the American Liberian population, uh, and of course threats by French, British, German colonial forces on the ground in Africa. They were always threatening uh, the sovereignty of Liberia, threatening to annex various borders from the time the, the, the country was initiated. So what is different about this case is that in 1907, a Liberian official contacts Booker T. Washington Ah, they are under threat by French, British, and German forces on the ground, and they want to annex Liberia. Contacted, and he is the person who becomes the key negotiator in this crisis and brings it full circle for Liberia to be paid out of debt or bought out of debt and pretty much the borders established, not without some loss, uh, but established nonetheless as the other independent African nation on the continent. Now, the conditions under which Washington negotiates Liberia out of this crisis uh, are not necessarily favorable, but the circumstances are if the United States <laughs> did not state claims and or do something that would allow Liberia to buy itself out of debt in these threats, then basically Liberia would have been taken over, right? Mm-hmm. And And essentially it would not be the independent nation that it is at this point in time. So Washington Washington is the person who who facilitates that. And how he does that is by bringing the Liberian Commission to the United States and he hosts them in Tuskegee. <laughs> so if you see the web page uh, about the book on the website for the book, that picture of Washington and several other men. That's a picture of um, that's a picture of the Liberian Commission being hosted in Tuskegee, wow. and um, that is proof that they, in fact, came to the United States, come through D.C are hosted in Tuskegee by Washington, and then he brings them back to uh, D.C. to have secret meetings with President Roosevelt, President-elect, right, because there's a change in administration going on, President-elect Taft, the Secretary of State, Elihu Root at the time. And this allowed Liberian officials to say what they wanted, right, the need, the help they needed directly. Now, that wasn't traditional. Normally, any nation seeking aid or help from the United States has to go to the uh, State Department, and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do not have secret meetings. So actually, it's interesting because this is around 1908. This crisis spanned 
our negotiations during this crisis span from 1907 to 1912. But 1908, the Liberian Commission is secretly at the White House with Booker T. Washington. People had made a big deal about Washington going to dinner with Roosevelt or Roosevelt having Washington for dinner at the White House. It caused such a stir in American society. And um, essentially the reality is is that Washington was frequent at the White House. (laughs) He was a frequent uh, guest. So it really wasn't a big deal. It's just that it was not public information, right? So that is uh, consistent with finding him at a secret meeting that he initiates. And we see that all everything I'm saying, we see this in the document correspondence. It comes from actual correspondence in Washington's personal papers. So, um, you know, so he, he basically facilitates these meetings, and then the Librarian Commission comes back in a commission from the U.S. to Liberia to do fact-finding on the ground uh, in terms of the nature of the conflicts, uh, goes to Liberia, and then comes back and reports on that. But ultimately, Washington is able to um, force the U.S. to give what is very necessary support. Otherwise, basically, Liberia would have been, um, you know, annexed by any of the three or all of the three. (laughs) Each would have taken whatever portion they wanted and were threatening to do that. Wow. And then you also mentioned that um, he was part of the African exclusion measure. Again, I'm with my Mm -hmm. pen and pad. I don't know what to... African you have the book, right? Yeah, I have it. I have it. And okay. um but I didn't go to HBCU. Um, uh-huh. I came out of um a high school in Patterson, New Jersey, and this was not part of my high school curriculum. Uh-huh. Um, but I think what you're doing is phenomenal. Um Thank you. Uh, you know, and and many people I'm pretty sure my listeners may not have access to the book right now while they listen to your show. Mm-hmm. But after hearing what you're telling them, like myself, I think you're not only going to want your book, but they're going to want to delve more into, you know, Booker T's uh, secret life as far oh, as being yeah. a Pan-African. And so could you give us a little bit of information about the African exclusion measure? Sure. Well, actually, it's so funny because this would be the anniversary of that measure or that amendment to the larger immigration bill of 1915. Mm-hmm. And um, this measure that was attached to the to the larger immigration bill originates with a senator from Missouri named James Reed, and he he basically proposes the exclusion of various groups of people, but it doesn't pass in the Senate. Then he narrows his proposal, his proposed amendment to be exclusive to the African population. So he proposes the exclusion of every 
African or black person. And it's not just the proposing of the exclusion from the U.S. of any African or black person. What the measure, what the amendment does is place these individuals attempting to immigrate to the U.S. in the same category as undesirables or criminals attempting to enter the country. So it criminalizes a certain group of people or, if you will, race or culture of people uh, identified as black or African. Now, the measure obviously would have locked the doors of the U.S. to any African person or identifiably black person coming from anywhere in the world. But what precipitated such an amendment to the uh, larger immigration bill was the completion of the Panama Canal. And that was done in November of 1914. Long story short, we know that the laborers on the Panama Canal were overwhelmingly the African and black population of the Caribbean, Central, and South America. So... That was a direct statement on the part of Senator Reed as a, a member of the U.S. government, saying we propose that we we propose that we can deny immigration to this country on race, and directed at you all, you laborers who built the Panama Canal. It was an American endeavor, an endeavor, an American endeavor. But ultimately, they're saying thanks, but no thanks. Thanks for your labor, but no, you can't immigrate here. Uh, Funny enough, the populations that this would have impacted most would have been those populations, the African population of the Caribbean, Central, and South America. And so what happens in the Senate is the measure quickly passes without a lot of conversation and very little protest. That meant that the measure, the amendment to the large immigration bill, would go to the House. And this is when Washington finds out about it because he was, he read the congressional record. And he also was, I mean, he was connected enough anyway that he would have been watching not only the congressional record, but he would have been listening to what was coming up and so, and what would be voted on. So, One of his interests is, if you saw Chapter 3 in the book, one of his interests is to always have a steady flow of students from Africa. Now, Mm. there were all kinds of international students. There were a lot of students, international students from South America, from the Caribbean, uh, from Puerto Rico, which was not yet uh, U.S. territory or Commonwealth. So... Washington always made sure that there was a steady flow of international students, particularly from Africa, for one main reason, for the purpose of educating them and exporting Tuskegee methods, which he felt were suitable for African communities. So his interest is to see which way this immigration amendment and any immigration legislation would go, right? So... The measure is up to be voted on in the House. Washington understands what this will mean for him in terms of tuition that uh, seeks to export Tuskegee methods, you know, and that becomes more and more apparent as you go further in the book. You see what Mm -hmm. 
Tuskegeeans get into in the world, uh, in the African world in terms of method, um, you know, on the African continent. But uh, you have to read the book. I don't want to give it all away. But okay. <laughs> Washington does what he does. He uses the Tuskegee machine to influence certain politicians. But what is important about this case is not the fact that the measure was eventually overthrown, because it was, clearly. We know that there are many African people in the United States who have immigrated to this country after 1915. So we know that the measure was overthrown or thrown out. Um, However, Washington is able to identify African people who are not identifying themselves as African or even as black. Very mm-hmm. often, you know, the, the the African population in the Caribbean, Central and South America identify by nationality mm-hmm. and sometimes by very um, stratified racial identities, right? Not necessarily right. black and white, a whole lot in between. Mm-hmm. Certainly, not certainly not people who would say, "Oh, African." They're talking about me. Populations who identify with their nations first and have, you know, some other, I guess, means or methods of identifying themselves along color lines, right, or racial lines. So before we go on, doctor. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure because you mentioned it a few times and I didn't get to jump in and ask you to please tell the audience the name of your website so they can buy this book. Okay, so it's it's all one word, Booker T. Washington and Africa. Don't put any periods or abbreviations, just Booker T. Washington and Africa.com. Okay, thank you. Now, please proceed. Okay. Uh, Where did I leave off? Well, basically, Washington identifies people who may have not considered themselves black or African. He identifies them as black or African. In his correspondence, he's very specific about who this would impact. African population from Jamaica and Trinidad and Cuba and Haiti and Santo Domingo, uh, or I'm sorry, the Dominican Republic, even names, uh, Panama, you know, South America, you know. So he is very clear about who would be, who was targeted. He does not think that this measure would have impacted African immigration from the continent of Africa. Why? Because there were so few African people immigrating straight from the continent um, that uh, it was almost minuscule in relationship to the numbers they expect to immigrate from the Caribbean, Central, and South America, right? So it's like 400, maybe not even more than 500 in maybe the previous year or two around that time. 500 people coming from the continent of Africa. So where they're expecting thousands, uh, yeah. if, 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 not, if not tens of thousands to immigrate from Caribbean, Central and South America. But what's unique about this is that no one educated Washington in that one week between December 31st when the measure passes, passes in the Senate to January 7th 
when the measure is defeated, no one educates him on who is African in the world. However, he understands exactly who this is targeting uh, and why they are being targeted, and he argues in the press that this is unfair and unjust and unnecessary and an affront to the masses of African people in the United States. And so it's along those lines that he fights over it. And he and he is able to pull every string. The 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 correspondence is very explicit, you know. So you're able to see, for the most part, that he attempts to pull and says pull every string possible to his lieutenants of the Tuskegee machine. And um, the irony of the whole case is the fact that the measure is defeated, but in arguing in the press and in general society against the measure, he is aligned with Du Bois and Monroe Trotter. Um, but they don't have the the unconstituted power that Washington has at that moment in time uh, and are unable to influence the, the vote or get their words onto the floor of the House. Ew. Um, with his own words, he's able to get them to the floor of the house. Uh, and, you know, so they, while they oppose the measure, they're unable to impact uh, in any real way how it, the outcome. But also, Du Bois, historically, and I addressed this in the book, Du Bois' real chief issue and concern with his relationship uh with it, in his relationship with Washington was the fact that Washington was very much um, someone who had a problem with young African leadership in America expressing opinions and views that were not aligned with him, and he had the power to silence them, and very often he did with his use of the Tuskegee machine, which is a secret network, or not so secret network, but a network of power brokers and people who, you know, carried things out that Washington wanted to see happen. (laughs) So, um, you know, so it's that very mechanism uh, or that network that actually defeats the Tuskegee machine, I mean, defeats the African exclusion measure because there's actual face-to-face challenges and lobbying and maneuvering on the floor of the House that uh, come from, you know, members of this network approaching various politicians who they expect are going to vote. Now let's just give the audience some uh, backdrop of um, the African nation's as far as slavery and colonialism, uh, colonization. Now, there's only one African country that was not colonized. Isn't that Ethiopia? Well, it's two, Ethiopia and Liberia. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in respect to that history, um, why do you think, um, you know, Pan-Africanism was important, and did they reciprocate? Did, was Pan-Africanism um, important in Africa to the extent that they would come to America or want to work with African Americans on a global level, or is it just That's one That's a way? good question. That's a good question. Are you asking me in the context of my book, or are you asking me? <laughs> Both. Both. <laughs> Both. 
<laughs> because, uh, you know, yes, I would say, you know, one of the things, and I've had some interesting and ferocious debates with people about this, about what's happening with Washington during this period. And I'm saying that Washington, in fact, made a transformation, right? He is not always a Pan-Africanist. He seeks certain things out. And as a result of seeking these things out and as a result of having relationships with African people on the continent and throughout the uh, diaspora, he develops and is transformed into a Pan-Africanist. And he is able to act on that in measurable ways. Uh, But he has relationships with Africans on the continent who absolutely want to connect with Africans in the U.S. and abroad. And they influence and impact his thinking just as much as he influences them in terms of methods and education. He may, They may have influenced him even more because the various African nationalists and Pan-Africanists that Washington comes in contact with are those who are very acutely aware of the struggles on the continent and have had some opportunities to travel and can can draw correlations between the experiences and the struggles of African people in America. So, Absolutely. I think that they're not calling it Pan-Africanism per se at that moment in time on the continent, but there are African nationals who make their way to, you know, any one of these gatherings, whether it's in London around the time of the first Pan-African conference later on, you know, after Washington's death and during the first you know, the Pan-African Congresses um, initiated by Du Bois. So, yes, I would say Africans on the continent are seeking to connect. Two, it is, of course, Pan-Africanism, and I talk about, I try to frame, you know, obviously give the historical context, the world as it was amongst, the world as it was at that moment in time and what budding Pan-Africanists were doing and and the influences. So essentially I talk about, you know, how Washington learns of the word Pan-Africanism and it's in the same way that the rest of the world did. It was in the coining of the phrase by Henry Sylvester Williams, who he also had a relationship with and corresponded with. And, of course, that's in the book, (laughs) So, you know, obviously I look at his relationship along the way as I tell the story with various Pan-Africanists, and I kind of put their, his relationships with, his relationship with them in context of that particular time. So he has a relationship with Henry Sylvester Williams uh, out of Trinidad, uh, residing in London, and we working for the African Association who initiated the first Pan-African Conference. But then, of course, you know, as I go along and talk about his relationship with other African people, not necessarily on the continent, but of the Pan-African and African nationalist persuasion, you see I get to Marcus Garvey. And 
Marcus Garvey is not using the term pan-Africanism, but he is very much aware of the need for the unity of African people beyond, you know, borders, you know. So the unification of African people from the diaspora with Africans on the continent, but he takes a step further, of course. He believes that Africa is for Africans and that, you know, African people need to obviously liberate the continent colonialism. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Dr. Wright. And uh, before you leave again, please give us your contact information. Um, I guess you are a public speaker, and that's how we met. So if anyone wants to have a book signing or have you come out as a public speaker, they need to contact you, and how can they do that? Okay, well, uh, you could contact, well, one, go to the website, there's information on the website, I believe. Uh, so that's Booker T. Washington in Africa.com. And you can see on the events page where I'll be in terms of book talks and, you know, readings and things of that nature. And then um, you can email me. <laughs> I'm not on Twitter. I am on Facebook, Irene Wright. And um, but also to you can just email me if you're really interested, and it's doctor dr dot tyrene dot right. Okay. Okay. All right. Any parting words? Any last words you like to say before we close? Well, let me just say this. I answered all your questions. The first half of your question. I want to finish answering the last half of your question. Okay. is Pan-Africanism relevant for today Cause today, and, and should and, and are we still making those connections? Absolutely, we're still making those connections. Do we, do we need to um, be more focused about those connections we're making? Yes, we need to understand that there needs to be some, there needs to be some benefit to Pan-Africanism. We're not just getting together. We have a common struggle. We have a common struggle in and trying to defend our humanity on this earth. But we have to allow, we have to understand that there needs to be some economic <laughs> benefits, social and political benefits to the unification of African people. Um, and so, and that's still happening. That is happening. But one of the things that we can invoke, and to be quite frank with you, at the end of the day, if anybody asks me why I wrote this book, I wrote this book for one reason, so we can revisit the Tuskegee model of sustainability because Mm -hmm. we've got to figure out what African people are going to do in terms of sustaining ourselves on this earth, independent of what anybody else thinks or feels or wants for us. And that's part of self-determination. We've got to understand that we can actually sustain ourselves. We've done it before. We've done it many times before. Tuskegee model is just one of the models, many models, of independent industrial black community. Uh, But it's a reminder, and, and I try to give some of the inner workings and understanding of what Tuskegee values, principles, were all about and methods were all about. And part of that was, you know, independence through industry. So we've got to get back to that conversation about sustainability amongst African people. We have a lot to, uh, we have a lot to get from each other, to benefit from each other, particularly uh, here in the diaspora and on the continent, you know. And so that's, 
the point I want to leave you with. <laughs> well, I I'm sorry, but you you just generated another question. <laughs> okay. And I okay. can't help it, but at the conference that the conference where we met, mm-hmm. a lot of the uh, Africans were talking about raw material being right. exploited. Right. And the the TV model and mm-hmm. and um George Washington Carver's model, mm-hmm. they they wouldn't use the raw materials the same way as the Europeans are using it. So well, and exploiting it. You know, why do you mm-hmm. think the Africans are embracing this this uh model of the European model where they need to uh, you know, I call it rob the earth of these natural resources and I don't think it's the way George Washington Carver would use it or the way Booker T. You know. Well, it's 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 been imposed on African people, right? African mm-hmm. people have been colonized. The land has been seized. You know, it is not uh, to the benefit of Africa, e- Africans, even now, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Post-colonial, neo-colonialism. It's not to the bend. That's that's the significant shift and in, in, in issue and problem I think going on in the world. That mm-hmm. you know, African people live on some some of the most resource or wealthy places in the world, but they are the last ones to benefit from those resources. And you know. It is a problem not just on the continent of Africa, but throughout the world. Actually, to be quite frank, in the Americas, right. uh, in the Caribbean, African people living on land that is resource, you know, uh, well resource rich and not benefiting. But um, mm-hmm. so. To answer that part of your question, I don't think it's a matter of a choice. I think it's a system that they were forced to, forced into, and mm-hmm. uh, everywhere <laughs> to um, initiating industry and what Carver introduced to Tuskegee and the in, in Macon County, uh, and by way of education to the black farmer was uh, subsistence farming. And basically that allowed, you know, black farmers to not only produce for themselves, but produce for a market, right? Mm-hmm. And so they were able to sustain themselves and earn a living outside of that. So what that's something that's going to have to be returned to, Right. But at the same time, and that that has a lot to do with power, right, being able to feed yourself. But even more, one of the things that I wanted to impress on the reader of this book was this concept of only, of not only producing raw materials. Tuskegeeans were entrained to produce finished products from start to finish. As mm-hmm. you can probably if you if you got through chapter three, you would see that, you know, I discussed that. The fact that um students were graded on whether or not they could complete a a, a carriage, 
not just a wheel, <laughs> right? right. Uh, so could they print an entire book, not just a page? Um, so that was the Tuskegee mode or method and standard um, at that point in time. Now, mind you, I'm talking about the Tuskegee of old. I am not talking about the Tuskegee Institute as it stands today, uh, you know. So, uh, But that was the standard. And the concept was you cannot have independence without industry, right? Mm-hmm. Because producing for yourself gives you independence. And so that was one of the main um things I wanted to revisit in looking at the Tuskegee model and the I and the concept um of independence through industry, right? Right. I think that um and I think I've lost hold of your question. <laughs> I think yeah. I answered your question. Did I think I? you did. Yes you okay. did. You sure did. Right. So no, this is the last point I was gonna say. Okay. So this this problem that most African nations have with producing raw goods, shipping them out, Washington addresses that. So it's not mm. only in the method, but in the Liberian crisis, he gives Liberian officials recommendations himself. And he one of the things he hones in on is the fact that they are consuming Western goods. And this is one of the things that also lets you know where Washington is at, like who he really is. He Mm -hmm. says, and all of these conversations obviously are incompetent, right, because these are personal papers. He says to one of the Liberian officials, every time you open a can in Liberia, you seal the fate of Liberian poverty. So, in other words, stop consuming Western goods. And he goes on to explain to them, every time you open a can, you're paying money on importing, importing that can into your country. You're paying money for the can that was taxed. And this does not benefit Liberia as a nation. In other words, he's telling them, stop consuming Western goods. Mm-hmm. So true. Okay. And, and and consume what you produce. So it's not just that he says these words, but you see that in the structure and the methods in practice at Tuskegee. So there's a consistency in, in understanding that that is, um, that in fact, something that has to be implemented in order to advance African people, be it on the continent or in America, um, as independent and free people. All right. So I enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. Uh, we have to have you back on. I know that you are a poet, and I know <laughs> yeah. we talked about having you in the show with some poetry. I don't know if you yeah. still want to do that. Uh, <laughs> no, another night. Another <laughs> okay. Night. And then we'll, we'll, we will schedule another... you. Okay. And we also we're going to schedule you for uh, on camera. Okay. All righty. An on camera interview at Eminem Studio. Okay. In the so again, thanks again, Doctor. And your book again is entitled uh, Booker T. Washington in Africa: The Making of a Pan Africanist. And the website uh, Booker T. Washington in Africa. dot com. All right, and have a good night, Doctor. Okay. Good night. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.